Hi, everyone. I'm Charlie Boyd, and welcome to the Jesus on Display podcast. Before we begin today's content, I wanted just to say thanks for supporting us here at Fellowship Greenville with your gifts and generosity. Because of your giving, we get to share resources like this podcast with you to help reach you wherever you are in your life with Jesus. If you'd like to support the ministry of Fellowship Greenville, you can head to fellowshipgreenville.org forward slash give to get started. Thanks so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy today's episode. Last week, I was flipping channels, and I ran across an old movie from the 1970s. It was a movie about Patton, General Patton, a film about World War II, George S. Patton, played by George C. Scott. Movie won seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture of the Year in 1970. I liked it so much, uh, you know, I was watching in PBS or I don't know where it was, but the guy comes on at the end and says, hey, there's a made-for-TV movie in 1986 called The Last Days of Patton. So I looked that up, finally found it on Amazon Prime, and so I watched that. It was also very good. Now, unquestionably, Patton was a great military genius and strategist, and he fought in almost every major American conflict in the 20th century. In World War II, he led armies from North Africa to Sicily, and there's no question that we might not have won World War II, or it would have taken a whole lot longer without Patton's race across France, where he liberated over 12,000 French towns and killed over a million and a half Nazis. He, he rescued doomed soldiers at Bastogne during the wintry Battle of the Bulge, and then he pushed right on into Germany, saving thousands of American and allied lives by helping bring a swift into the war. He volunteered the Third Army to make that drive to Bastogne when no one else would do it, to help the American forces there that were surrounded by the Germans. In fact, this is interesting, Karen's father, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Patrick Moran, was in the 101st Airborne. He flew into Normandy on a glider behind enemy lines early morning of the D-Day invasion on his 27th birthday. And uh, Karen's dad fought from Normandy all the way to Hitler's eagle's nest. And he was there in, in Bastogne in the Battle of the Bulge. And he said if it were not for Patton, they would have all been wiped out because surrender was not an option for those men. But for Patton, getting to Bastogne in the dead of winter proved to be nearly impossible. It had rained and snowed so much that his army was bogged down and behind schedule to get to Bastogne in time to rescue the troops hunkered down there, and the weather was predicted to get even worse. So Patton called the chaplain in and said to him, Chaplain, I want you to write a prayer. I want you to publish a prayer for good weather. I'm tired of these soldiers having to fight mud and floods and snow as well as Germans. See if we can't get God to work on our side. Well, uh, the weather got better. Uh, it, it worked, seemed to work, and, and, and he moved on from victory to victory. But being a great military strategist didn't mean he had a solid character. He, this man could not control his tongue. He criticized our allies and their generals. He was constantly saying things he should have never said. He stubbornly refused to obey orders, which got him in trouble with General Eisenhower on several occasions. 
He was called out many times by the American press, especially when he berated a soldier in front of his men who was having a breakdown, a meltdown from PTSD, which wasn't known as a psychological problem back then. He used so much profanity that they say it still hangs like a cloud over Europe to this day. I mean, he cheated on his wife. She was faithful to him through thick and thin to the last days of his life. By the end of the war, though he maintained his rank, he was moved downward from one command to the next, each step down with less and less influence. Patton was a mix of good and not so good. He was a great man in terms of his contribution to history, but not a great man in terms of his character. You could put it like this, as to the judgment of history... He was one of the most successful military generals of all time. But the judgment of history focuses on achievements and accomplishments and, and contributions and, success, and successes. For the most part, that's how General Patton is remembered. But in, and, and in this story, verses 47 and 48, we see how the judgment of history remembers Saul. Here's how Dale Ralph Davis lays it out in his wonderful commentary. Davis says, history's judgment is the external human calculation of a person's life and work. It's what folks can observe. By such a standard, Saul made his mark and made it well. Whether he turned east to Moab, southeast to Edom, northeast to Zobah, west of the, uh, to Philistia, he succeeded in war and defeated his enemies and delivered Israel. But David says, the judgment of history does not have the decisive verdict. The vital assessment cannot come from the applause of men within history, but only from the God who reigns over history. What matters then is not success, whether political or military, but covenant. And then he says this, Yahweh is not looking for winners. He's looking for disciples. Not looking for winners, he's looking for disciples. That's the reason for the negative undertow in chapters 13 and 14. Saul has begun to fail at the point of covenant in that he did not submit to the covenant of God. And for the Bible, covenant obedience is, means much more, far more than vocational achievement. So Saul's downward spiral into greater and greater stupidity and disobedience and his military successes are both true. Saul was, looking at the whole picture, a courageous, militarily successful king. No reason to deny that. No reason to hide that. But only one assessment really matters, and that is the verdict of the judge of history. Because it's possible to be a historical success and a spiritual failure. So just like Patton, Saul was a mix of good and not so good. He was a mix of self-centered, self-promotion, and successful military strategy. He was a mix of rebellion and religion. He was a mix of harsh, abusive rules and passive piety. He was a mix of knowing God's word and obeying it when it was convenient, but ignoring God's word when he wanted to do what seemed right to him. Saying, like, oh, okay, 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 well, why, why, why would God bless Saul with all these victories when he was such a mess? Well, like I said, not every victory is a victory. When you are passively indifferent toward God or in out-and-out -out rebellion against God, 
but things go well for you, never think that God is blessing you because of you. When you disobey God, never think that whatever good that happens to you means that God doesn't care about your sin and disobedience. No, the good may be for someone else entirely. Saul's victories were not for Saul. Saul's successes were for Israel. Yahweh was keeping his covenant promises to Israel. And Yahweh was winning great battles for his people. And he was doing it through Saul. Not every victory is a victory. Saul teaches us that. And not every tragic life is a tragedy if it is lived in faithful obedience to God in the circumstance he brings into our lives. Jonathan teaches us that. Again, as David says, God is not looking for winners. He's looking for disciples. So what's the passage about after all that? Well, the story is one more chapter in the downward spiral of the saga of Saul. And as we saw last week, it's showing us how, by being off one or two degrees, we can end up miles away from where God intends us to be. It is showing us that not every victory is a true victory. It's showing us that God isn't looking for winners, he's looking for disciples. And Saul looked like a winner, but Jonathan was the true disciple. Okay, so second question, what do we learn about God and life and faith in this story? Well, tucked away back at the beginning of this story is a statement about faith that I have had on my mind for two weeks now. Go back to verse six. Again, remember the Philistines are on one side of these two jagged mountain ranges, ravine in between. Israel uh, is on the other, and uh, it's, for days it's been a waiting game, and Jonathan and his armor bearers sneak out to the... Uh, to the camp, and they're looking across the ravine at the Philistine camp, and Jonathan says to his young armor bearer, let's just call him Jake, because I'm getting tired of saying armor bearer. So, so John says to Jake, come, let's go over to the garrison of the uncircumcised pagans. It may be that Yahweh will work for us, for nothing can hinder Yahweh from saving by many or by few. Now, the NAS and the NIV and the NLT translations use the word perhaps here instead of it may be. And, of course, they mean the same thing, but I really like the word perhaps, so I'm going to go with that. Let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised pagans. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Let me tell you, there is so much good theology stuffed in that one verse, theology that if Saul had understood it, it would have been uh, him rather than Jonathan leading the charge that day. And this story teaches us an important lesson about faith, what it is and how it works. And from verse six, it's what I call the perhaps of faith. The perhaps of faith. Now, you remember back in chapter 13, Jonathan took the initiative to knock off the Philistine garrison, which caused all this mess with the Philistines at the beginning, and now he does it again. He takes the initiative. He wants to attack again, so he says, let's go across to the outpost of the uncircumcised pagans. Perhaps God will work for us. Perhaps God will help us. Perhaps God will give us the victory. And he says, perhaps... Why? Because in a situation like this, how do you know? Well, how you know is you make yourself available. You put yourself at God's disposal. Faith is, is seeing an opportunity, and then you start moving in that direction. But 
it's not like you know for certain what God is going to do or not do. You don't. You don't always know. Jonathan has received no definitive word from the Lord about this. He doesn't know what Yahweh will do, but in a situation like this, you make yourself available, you put yourself at God's disposal, and you start walking towards the target. And that's the perhaps of faith. Now, of course, the perhaps of faith rests on the conviction of faith. What is that? Well, it's your theology of God. It's knowing who God is and knowing how, how God works. That's what fuels the perhaps of faith. Jonathan knows that God is all-powerful, and he has a firm conviction of the omnipotence of God. He knows God is not limited by our resources. He knows that God is not limited by our lack. He knows that God is not limited by our weakness. He's not limited by what seems to be impossible circumstances. He's not limited by what the doctors say is terminal. And because Jonathan has the conviction that God is all-powerful and in no way limited by any circumstances, listen, then Jonathan's faith was not limited by what seemed to be an impossibly dangerous, deadly situation. But, as I said, he did not presume upon the Lord. That's built into the perhaps of faith. You see, there's a difference between faith and presumption. Yes, faith does trust God for good outcomes. Faith trusts God to work for us, to do things for us we can't do for ourselves. But faith doesn't presume that God will do something for us just because we believe he will. That is not faith. Faith is not believing that God will give you what you want. Faith is not if you, if you want God to do something for you and you don't doubt that God has to give you what you ask for. No. You see, the perhaps of faith factors in the freedom of God. You cannot take for granted that God will give you what you ask for just because you believe. You really, 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 you really, really believe he will. No. We see the same thing in the Old Testament story from the book of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar's ordered everyone in his empire to bow down to a golden image uh, that he set up, and if you don't bow down, he's going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And three young Hebrew men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow down. So Nebuchadnezzar flies into a rage. He orders them to bow or burn, and he gives them a second chance. And remember what they said? They basically said, okay, O king, we don't need a second chance. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand one way or the other, O king. But if not... But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. See it? God's all-powerful. That's the conviction of faith. We have the firm, con firm conviction that he can deliver us out of your hand, but if not, that's the perhaps of faith. If not, we're willing to die. Same thing. The perhaps of faith rests on both the power of God and the freedom of God to do what he deems best. And of course, the supreme example of that kind of faith is Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before he was arrested, Jesus prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. 
He knew his father in heaven had all the power necessary to save him from the cross. He could have called a thousand angels, a legion of angels down to save him. He knew that was certainly possible and he had the freedom to pray and ask God to do different if that would be best. But he also trusted in his father's freedom to do what had to be done to secure our salvation. And that's why he prayed, but not my will, but thy will be done. He had been walking. He had set his face towards Jerusalem, walking towards the cross. Perhaps there was another way, but if not, he would keep moving forward because his father could be trusted to do what is best. You follow me here? Biblical faith rests on God's power and God's freedom to do what he knows is best. Biblical faith rests on God's power and God's freedom to do what he knows. That's the perhaps of faith. I wonder, is there some area in your life where you're praying about something and you're experiencing disappointment and frustration because it's not happening and you're questioning yourself, like, I, I, I feel like I have the faith. I feel like I have enough faith. God doesn't want you to live like that. Listen, the perhaps of faith doesn't take the glow out of asking God to do something you need him to do, but it does take the disappointment and frustration out of praying for something, and God doesn't give you what you ask for, and you're ready to throw in the towel. It, the perhaps of faith strengthens your faith because you have the freedom to ask God for whatever you want but you also rest in God's freedom to do what he deems best. That's the perhaps of faith. And that's what an authentic, real walk of faith looks like. Trusting in both the power of God and the freedom of God to work for our good and for his glory in each and every circumstance he brings into our life. That's the perhaps of faith. The Jesus on Display podcast is produced right here at Fellowship Greenville in Greenville, South Carolina. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Follow and share this podcast with anyone who might be interested or curious about our church community or how storytelling unites us and helps us feel more connected. To actively keep up with what's going on at our church community, head to our website at fellowshipgreenville.org, follow us on all social media platforms, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for tuning in. Grace and peace to you for your week, and we'll see you next time.